What's up, rich friends? Welcome back to another episode of Net Worth and Chill with me, your host, Vivian Tu, aka your rich BFF and your favorite Wall Street girly. This week, we're getting spicy and we're going to talk about the news and how to think really critically about what we're reading, consuming, and viewing. Especially since millennials and Gen Z are spending less and less time watching traditional TV, we're starting to get our news in a lot of different ways. And I can't tell you the number of times when I've been referring to a conversation with a friend and I say, oh, I read that XYZ, when in reality, I had just seen it on TikTok and I was too embarrassed to tell anyone that's where I got my information source from. While this has made staying up to date a lot easier, it does beg the question, can we really trust everything we see on the internet? I'm personally very skeptical of information unless I see it corroborated by multiple sources, but I'm not a journalist, so I thought I should invite one here to chat with us instead. Started from the bottom, now we're here. There is nobody better to help guide us than TikTok's number one news anchor, host of podcast V Interesting, and the face behind Under the Desk News. Please welcome V Spihar. Hey, friend. How are you doing? I'm so glad to be here. Thank you so much for coming on the pod. Absolutely. Always a joy to see you. Most of the time when I see you these days, it's in DC. (laughs) You are doing the damn thing, getting in that press room. So I'm incredibly proud of you and all of the incredible work you've done and I'm just so glad we're chatting. Thank you. Me too. I know you said in the intro, started at the bottom, now we're here. And we are still on the floor. The floor is still the safe space. I'm still a floor person. All my floor people unite. Oh my gosh. You guys, when V logged on for us to record this podcast, I was making a joke about her office setup and how nice it looked when (laughs) typically when I see them, they're in this tiny little space cubby on the ground, just smushed up. And it just made me laugh. Um, but I love the, the desk of under the desk news. Yes. Um, so again, for everyone listening, V and I actually met for the very first time at the white house where I actually aggressively fangirled. I ran up to you, um, <laughs> v had no idea who I was and was very nice about it. It was like, Oh, cool. Sick. Like nice to meet you, I guess. Um, but since then we have had the chance to become fast friends. And I've gotten to learn a lot about your story, but V, for those of us listening who don't know, can you tell us about your background? Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Did you always want to become a journalist? Yeah. So I did not always want to become a journalist. I wanted to be on Broadway. Like all people who are excellent storytellers, I was like maybe three years old when I decided that I was going to be a Broadway star. Like tap dancing, like musical theater. Like I was very into that. Um, My grandmothers were both very into musical theater. I came from like a theatery family. So that made sense to (laughs) me. And in many ways, TikTok and journalism is a form of performing. And so I think I got my dream in that way. But yeah, I grew up in Connecticut in a very small town. For anybody listening in Connecticut, I grew up in the Valley, if you can believe that I escaped the Valley and went to school in New York, undergraduate degree in theater, master's degree in marketing, because you have to go to grad school after you go to regular school if you go to school for theater. And that is my first financial tip for you. And so that all worked out had a great time, had a wonderful career, you know, performing and whatnot, got into the food advocacy space actually first and did a lot of like food legislation and food advocacy work. And then the pandemic happened and I found myself under my desk explaining PPP loans to people, you know? (laughs) 
Um, I'm curious, you mentioned growing up in Connecticut, like, mm-hmm. would you say that when you were growing up, your family was lower income, middle income, or higher income? So I think everyone you ask is going to say that they were middle class, no matter who yeah. they are, right? Everybody wants to say they're middle class because you don't want to ever appear too rich and you don't ever want to appear too poor. So everyone says middle class. I had teenage parents, okay? So the experience that I had, who are still married now and who love each other desperately and who did their absolute best, but the experience I had growing up with extremely young parents who were still still in school earlier in their careers compared to say my brother who's eight years younger than me is night and day. I would say that we probably grew up what would be maybe considered like lower middle class or what I like to call regular working folks style uh, where he definitely grew up decidedly middle class um, brand, na- brand name everything not having to worry about lunch money or any of that kind of stuff. So I think it's hard to say because there was such a flip for me the difference between when my parents were so young and when my dad got his job at Sikorsky aircraft, right? That was like a big union job building military helicopters or where my mom started nursing. That changed completely our tax bracket from when she was in school. So a little bit of both, I guess I would say. And is it just you and your one brother? Nope. I have a sister too, who's right in the middle. And she- child. She is the middle child. And she definitely, I don't know that she ever paid attention really. I think Jen sort of like, you know, she kind of got to like ride the wave between me and my brother where her experience was less influenced by being the first child that my parents were trying to deal with. And Jen was a less expensive child, if that makes sense. Like I wanted to go to dancing school. I wanted new costumes all the time. I wanted to do every sport. I wanted to see every single thing. And Jen was like very happy to play at home, you know, so like a little, a definitely a less demanding child. And so I don't, I don't know. I've never actually asked her how she felt about money growing up. Interesting. And you mentioned your brother never had to worry about lunch money growing up. No. Whereas you might have, you know, had you- I did. So had. the one thing that my mom wanted so badly is she wanted us to get free and reduced lunch. It was like a relatively new program. And she did not understand why all children wouldn't get free and reduced lunch because any family could certainly benefit from not sending the dollar twenty-five five days a week for their kid to get, you know, some random little macaroni in a fruit cup. And so- I think she was on to the right idea with the fact that school and property taxes and the way that we invest in education should include a quality meal for the children while they're there. And it should be for all children regardless, because that's like a great equalizer. But she really wanted us to have free and reduced lunch and we missed that cutoff. So Mm -hmm. one of the first times I remember being super aware of money and the power of money and the independence that money gives you is I got my first job at like 12 at our family dry cleaner, like tagging shirts. And I would get like, I don't know, like $4 an hour or something. It was like my family job. (laughs) And um, the first time I got like my paycheck, which was just an envelope of cash. Are we getting, we're getting too into child labor now. These are family stories from the eighties and nineties. Okay. It's different now. So the first time I got my paycheck, my envelope of cash, I remember waiting up because my dad used to go to work at like four in the morning. And I wanted to tell him that I had my own lunch money. And I was so proud of that. I was like maybe 13 years old when that happened. And I remember thinking that that was a really big deal. You wanted to use that money that you had earned Mm -hmm. through time. Tagging these shirts for your own lunch money. Yes. Tiny child V wasn't like, oh, I want to go buy toys or gum. No, no, because they had really provided me everything that I had wanted. I didn't know if we really had money or didn't have money. I never felt like any kind of like pinch as a child. Mm -hmm. I do remember when my parents would like 
they had this owl, this wicker owl that they used to keep all their bills in. And I can specifically remember like some nights, like every so often when the owl came out and (laughs) that was like, because they were going to lay out the bills and decide which Mm -hmm. one they were going to pay first. And so I had like some memories of this, but I don't remember them being traumatic or sad or scary or anything like that. My parents are lovely in the way that they, they shielded us from anything that might have been going on that was uh, difficult for them financially. And we were generally pretty happy with what we had. I would say we fit in with our neighborhood. Again, it felt like a normal suburban neighborhood. But yeah, the doing that, the lunch money thing was such a big deal to me because I just wanted my dad to be proud of me because I knew that he worked really hard and I knew that he also made a ton of time for us. And it was like my first job. And again, it was a family job. So I wanted to like show them that I was like, independent now, right? And I could like pick my own lunch like I could have anyway before, but there was something about it that just felt very grown up to me about having my own lunch money. That's very much like oldest child in the oh. family personality <laughs> syndrome. Yeah, because my brother also worked when he was young. He was like, yeah, but that's <laughs> my money to do my stuff with. Like, why wouldn't you take? And at that time, lunch was $5 because he was, by the time he went to school, my dad would leave him $5 for lunch. He's also, he was boy, so it was like different build or whatever. Uh, he needed more food, I guess. But he would leave him $5 a day. And he'd be like, sometimes I don't even get lunch. But like, why wouldn't I take the $5 from dad? Like, why I would take that and then I'm going to use it on food someday. Maybe I'll get McDonald's after school or something. And I was like, you have no honor. Right? <laughs> like, <laughs> we are in fact built different. Oh, but he's the baby and he's a boy. Yeah. You know what I mean? So yeah, everybody's got their different things. And talking about food, you'd mentioned you were working heavily in the food advocacy space, mm-hmm. nonprofit space. I love to call this like hashtag team good guys. Yes. But for the most part, that industry isn't known for being particularly lucrative. Do you mind me asking how much were you making at the time and was money ever a concern for you? Yes. So I... Speaking not about all nonprofits or nonprofit culture across the board, of course, but I think it's incredibly exploitative often. Half Mm. of your salary can be paid to you in emotional satisfaction. And there are some nonprofits that really capitalize on that, in particular in the food space, which is something that everybody can understand hunger and the need and just the need is so great. And there are so many people that need help that oftentimes I would find in the nonprofit sector, folks would say, well, I can pay you 47000 but what you're going to learn and the people you're going to help are going to just give you such satisfaction that you're not going to need more money than that, right? And you're like 23 and you're like, Yes, I'm going to save the world. No one's going to be hungry on my watch. And I'm going to, it's the same thing you see sometimes with churches. Except like you might be hungry on your watch. Oh yeah. And and yes, that, so that's why the first nonprofit thing didn't last that long. But they they do the same thing with like churches sometimes, you know yeah. what I mean? Like where like labor within a religious organization isn't always paid. There's some aspect of volunteerism and altruism. Well, that happens in the nonprofit sector, except this is an industry. This isn't, you know, your religion where you, you feel like you're paying some sort of like tied to heaven or something, you know, <laughs> this is supposed to just be your job and they should just be mm-hmm. paying you because oftentimes these nonprofits are bringing in millions upon millions of dollars and somebody who's an LLC or an S corp or, or something like that may not be bringing in the donations, the cash money that a nonprofit is, but they're paying their people a little bit better. So I've worked both in the for-profit industry that serves 
hungry people and in the nonprofit industry that serves hungry people. And then I had a job at the James Beard Foundation, which is a foundation mm-hmm. that is a nonprofit that serves rich people. <laughs> so so it's like, you know, I've done a little bit of everything everywhere. Wow. And how did you pivot that into crawling underneath a small desk and talking about PPP loans? So I've always been very good at explaining complex things to people, um, whether that is explaining why you should care about poor people to rich people or why we shouldn't waste 40% of our food. And then learning that the best way to get folks to care about food waste was to talk about the economic impact and the cost of the food waste. Not so much, oh, it's so sad that all this food went to waste, but do you know how much it costs you that food goes to waste? So I've always been very good at like figuring out what the story was that was going to resonate with people, that was going to spur them to action. And that's what made me really good at food policy and really good at hunger advocacy. And that is also what made me really good at TikTok initially and storytelling was the idea that like it was the pandemic, things were awful, people were confused. The idea of running a restaurant and applying for the shuttered venue and applying for PPP while you're also trying to be like a makeshift food pantry for your community and trying to do to go with a menu that maybe was never made for to go and watching yourself have to like let go of so much of your staff and be in so much pain. These people could not imagine filling out a government form. So I was like, it's actually not that bad and I know how to do it. So let me tell you how we're going to do it. And I did a workshop series on how to apply for PPP, how to apply for shuttered venue, how to keep your uh, kitchens open, connecting supply chain in a smaller way, like how to build out a local supply chain. And that was the beginning of everything. The pivot wasn't so much from in-person advocacy to explaining government programs on TikTok. The pivot came on January 6th when I switched from doing cooking content and food policy content to straight up, here's what happened today. And that's where it's Monday night. I think it was a Tuesday, actually. It's Tuesday night. And here's what happened. And I was explaining what happened at the Capitol. And then my friend Randy was like, you better get back under that desk and tell everybody what happened today, too. And so that it became Wednesday night. And here's what happened Thursday night. And here's what happened. And I wanted to bring it to people in a way that didn't scare them, that wasn't necessarily partisan, and that just told people what happened that day. Because what we were hearing is why it's happening, what's going to happen next. It was just too much information to process. So the flip came then. What? compelled you as an adult person of adult person size to crawl underneath a desk to do, you know, there's, there's certainly people who talk about the news typically above said desk. Right. What made you want to do that? So I felt like I didn't feel invited to that space. Honestly, I was watching news anchors who were established broadcast journalists, some of the best in the biz, right, who were also covering this. And they were coming from an expert lens. And I wanted to make clear on TikTok that I was not that person. I wasn't Mm. a traditional journalist who was going to be a news channel per se. I was your friend who was a citizen journalist, who was a peer newscaster, who was sort of like telling the story of how it was affecting us. And so being under the desk initially one you know tiktok makes you have a niche and it makes you do kooky stuff and I'm, i wasn't gonna dance and so i was like okay we have to create an atmosphere that makes clear to people that this is like a safe space this is a quiet space this is a space that is away from all the noise where just me and you are gonna talk i don't use a lot of video clips or video packages and we're just gonna talk about what happened today and we're just gonna have this little moment under our desk right when i worked in offices. I used to go on coffee walks with the folks that I work with where you get like so aggravated by your boss that you're like, I'm going to go get coffee. And this was like coffee walk vibes, except I was alone in my house because it was a pandemic. And so I was like, (laughs) I'm just going to meet you under the desk because everything is so scary and we just have to get low here and just kind of be floor people and have story time. I love that. And, you know, obviously this has clearly worked out very, very well for you. You've built out this entire community of people 
who I find to be really interesting because you and I had a conversation previously that everyone from young women to older parents to frat boys watch your content. Mm -hmm. And I would be hard pressed to think of another news network or a news program that does appeal to people of so many different walks of life. Mm -hmm. And I think that's because I decided from the beginning that's how it was going to be. In my real life, I have conservative family members Mm -hmm. who have really changed their position. Like I would say the conservative group of folks has fractured in so many ways over the last maybe even like three years, really. And the word conservative has changed and the word Republican has changed and the way that people are willing to label themselves have changed. And so from the beginning, I truly did not think that right wing, left wing, and that was all like for big networks who had an agenda to fulfill and they had commitments to fulfill and they had made a promise to their audience that they were more right wing or left wing or whatever the case may be. And I didn't have that. I was just like my own little person who exists amongst all kinds of other people. And so I wanted it to be a place where we could all meet together and not be so hateful and name Kali and partisan, if you will. And so I also think that people go where they feel like they belong. And if you look at the news networks, let's just take CNN and Fox for easy sake, right? If you're a liberal, you watch CNN because they are more likely to confirm your thoughts. And if you're right wing, you watch Fox because they're more likely to confirm your thoughts. But that doesn't mean that either one is exactly correct, right? Mm -hmm. And I just felt like we had enough of that. And there were a lot of times that I talked to my friends who were in the military who were telling me stuff that was going on who might identify or even vote as Republican. And they were like, yo, man, but this pandemic is hurting all of us fairly equally. There was this moment where the classes mattered more than the politics. And and that's when I started my channel. And so I feel like because I've been welcoming to everyone, because I give people the time, they give me the time. I love that. You know, talking a little bit about your personal life, you Mm -hmm. have been very, very proud and loud about being a member of the LGBTQ community. You post about your wife and you and I obviously met under specific circumstances. We were invited by the Biden administration to the White House. Mm -hmm. I think I'm guessing you and I have very, very similar and strong beliefs as it pertains to, you know, allowing people to love who they love Mm -hmm. and wanting to do right by the little guy. I think it's clear that we sit on a specific side of the aisle. How do you make sure that your content doesn't feel that way? Because I'm sure that is a huge challenge. I don't know if I would necessarily be able to be like, but also, by the way, like, these are my personal opinion. Like, you know, like I can't hold that back, but I feel like you do such a good job. I think because of where I grew up in the jobs that I had, right? Like I'm so used to dealing with and catering to the personalities and feelings of other people and to get them to hear my side, I had to craft this perfectly curated version of myself that they would find acceptable long enough for me to make them feel empathy for me and then not hate all gay people because it was like, oh, well, I like the, if I'm your gateway to being a more inclusive person, I'm okay with that. And sometimes that's all that it is. And that's okay for me. And I think a lot of that comes from the work that I did previously. When you are working in food, hunger affects everyone and food supply chain affects everyone. So you are working with Republican governors. You are working with Nancy DeVos, who was the head of the Department of Education when I was trying to put a food program in Michigan, Detroit, which is like where she was from. And I was like, Betsy, please don't just let the kids have free lunch. Okay, right. Like, I understand you want to do a voucher thing and you hate the schools and whatnot. But for just today, why don't we just agree? It'll be good for you. Why don't we just agree? that you 
don't fuck up my program, right? <laughs> now, sometimes that's how you have to do it, right? You have to work with all different people, find what is the win for them and present it in a way that makes sense and then get out of there before they change their mind. And that happens on both sides of the aisle for all kinds of issues. It especially happens in food and that's how I think I got so good at it. I also don't subscribe to the idea that every single person who identifies as a Republican is completely aligned with the farthest ideology of that particular party. Same thing with the Democratic Party. I think there are people who are more progressive. There are people who are more neoliberal. There are people who claim to be Democrats who are definitely Republicans, right? They're like, they're like a Reagan Republican, but that's like a Democrat sometimes now. So I think when you treat people as people and we treat folks as like existing within a circumstance and everybody has a win and everybody has something that they're not willing to listen to, finding that quickly and saying the right thing at the right time that's going to hit properly, that you mean, that you're authentically mean, has made me successful in this space. But it's also created a world in which if you look at my comments, you're going to see a lot less fighting, name calling and harassment than you do on other news channels because I have set the vibe that like, I respect you. You might be a proud boy. If you watched my video and you took something away from that, you don't have to tell anyone. You don't have to tell anyone that you learned something here today, but you did, you know, but you I also read. don't need to go in my <laughs> comments and harass people in the comments. Exactly. They could say, well, I read or whatnot. Yeah. And I think it really does come down to seeing people as people and building a community that's based on everybody likes to learn. Everybody likes to feel smart. Everybody just wants to know what happened. You know, just tell me what happened. Tell me what this means. And then allow me to dive deeper by inputting my own biases and what it means for me. You know, if we take student loan forgiveness, for example, there's a lot of people who are very against it, who never even went to college. And that's because the hurt they have is that they felt like they gave up their chance so long ago. And now their regret is, fuck, man, if I would have taken those loans, maybe I would be in a different position because now they're getting forgiven. Well, we can't go back. There's lots of things that I wish I did that turned out different, you know, but when we make it like a, well, if you are for student loan forgiveness, then you're a liberal, like then nobody's going to listen. Right? right. So I think people create infighting to control and not to improve. And it happens, you know, on both sides. You know, you just mentioned student loan forgiveness. What would you say are the top three headlines right now that are really impacting people's wallets? Student loan forgiveness is a big one. And I think that it's such a complicated issue that we don't give enough space to because people look at it as, well, look at how many people it would help. And if you don't want to help those people, you're a bad person. And that's true. That that's, That is true. But it's also true that some of the people who don't want to help feel like it's because they don't have anything more to give. They right. joined the military to get the GI Bill to go to college themselves. And now you're just going to get your loans forgiven. I would have a little feeling about that too really? if I were in their seat or I didn't get to go to college because I had to take over my family farm or my family business or my family was too poor for me to go or I started and I couldn't afford to finish. I have regret about that. I have a feeling about that. That hurts me. And now I'm working a job where I similarly feel like I'm living in lack all the time. And now somebody told me that my tax dollars that I hate paying because I barely have enough money to live are going to go to some yuppie who went to Yale, which is not true, right? But that's the boogeyman's we create for people. Yeah. I think student loans is a big deal. And I think that the national conversation has just been so hijacked by partisan politics that that we can't look at it and say, you know what? You did join the military right after 9-11 to pay for the GI Bill because you thought that this country was absolutely going to end and that was scary and that was upsetting and you don't feel like you got your due. We should do what's right for you 
also, right? We should do something for you too um, and work together on, on what is that solution. The other big headline that I think people like to jump on is parental rights and what are parental rights versus what are constitutional rights afforded to children. But the conversation is not what are parental rights versus the rights you're born with as an autonomous being who is a citizen at birth. It's, well, if everybody's taking their kids to drag shows. I've never seen a kid at a drag show in my life. I've never like, I'm really, you know, but if you listened to the news, it would be like every single 50% of parents are exposing their children to lewd sex, right? But they're not, but they're not, but nobody's saying like, oh, that doesn't even make sense, right? So then it's like, so, and that's why I have to control all the books in the school, right? Because yes. you're a bad parent and I'm a good parent. It's the good and evil conversation. And we've just gotten to such a weird place because we've allowed ourselves to believe hypothetical situations are actual threats. And that doesn't serve us and it doesn't serve our community, but it sure does serve political fundraising. So I think parental rights is another one, just like student loans where we're not listening to each other and we've just decided that we hate each other mm -hmm. and who should get them uh, is based on arbitrary things that aren't even happening. And I think that is costing people a lot of time and money mm -hmm. and advocacy and a lot of bad faith politicians are fundraising off that. And I know that you get these mm -hmm. texts. I used to get these texts from Nancy Pelosi. The Democrats need $5 to fight drag bans, right? Or that's, I'm making that one up right now, but whatever the case may have been at yeah. that time. Same thing on the Republican side. Donald Trump needs $20 from you today to fight drag bans. <laughs> like to yeah. fight, they just come up with crazy stuff and then they fundraise off of us on it. So I think that's yeah. affecting people's wallets because their fear has been triggered. Their protective instinct has been triggered and they're trying to buy some sort of like that's, relief. That's so interesting that you mentioned that, that like any like hot button issue that is so, so divisive, the only folks who are really winning, the only people who are profiting are our quote unquote public servants. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is a very generous term at, at these days, frankly. And it doesn't necessarily behoove any of us to be going against each other head to head versus sitting down, trying to find common ground and yeah. doing what makes feasible sense for our communities. My mom did this the other day. I'm going to put my mom on the spot. Oh, man. My mother lives in Florida and everybody, that's where I do the grotto news from. And she lives in Florida. And some of the people who live in her development are conservative and some of them are like non-political and whatever. So she was walking her little dog the other day and she heard someone say, well, you know, all these LGBTQs are at the White House now. And she was like, are they talking about my child? Because <laughs> like it could have been. And she like stopped with her little dog and was like, excuse me, what are you talking about? And they're like, you know, all these LGBTQs and drag queens are trying to ruin our kids. And she's like, first of all, who? Give me a name. Give me one name. And like went so hard on this guy that her neighbor came over and was like, oh my God, Maureen, are you okay? And she's like, no, I am not okay. I'm not okay with walking my dog around my community and hearing you saying stupid stuff you know nothing about because what are you, bored or something? Talk about somebody else. That doesn't even make sense. What you're saying isn't even happening. We're in an over 55 community. Whose children are going to drag shows here? Nobody is. There's not even any children here. Like, and went off. And I truly do think that she was doing the Lord's work that day. Because we have to embarrass people for finding comfort in talking shit about minority groups because they are bored or because they want to feel something. And I think more of that is how we're going to get better and not politicians fighting for us to be a less divided country. You know what I mean? It's like moms with little dogs walking around going, yeah. why are you saying that? Why are you saying that? Oh, mom, what a, I know. What a bad bitch move. That's incredible. She came back and was like, you're not going to believe this. I started a riot. <laughs> I'm like, <"Mah." laughs> 
Oh my God. And you know, then they apologized and they were like, she's like, did you know my daughter was at the white house? And they're like, no. And also, wow, Maureen, that's really, you should be so proud of them. And she was like, <laughs> I am right. So now we have this conversation because my mother's neighbors love her and care about her. They watch each other's dogs. They care about each other. They didn't know that this thing, this hypothetical they were talking about was her actual kid who has been yeah. to the white house. Who's gay. And they were like, Oh, you should be so proud. And she's like, okay, well then multiple things have to be true. Joe Biden can't be an awful, terrible, terrible person who's rotten and dragging this country to shit. And we're proud of my daughter for going to the White House, right? Somewhere in the middle is the truth of these two things. You don't actually hate everything as much as you think you do if you still think it's an honor to like be included in in democracy, right? So I think a little bit more of that, you know, is going to help us and go a long way to stop us from sending politicians money and also fighting with each other, putting up fences. That's got to be expensive. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so we've we've chatted student loan headlines, Mm -hmm. parental rights, What would you say is like the third headline that is most deeply impacting people's wallets these days? I think the war in Ukraine, the revolution Mm -hmm. in Iran, I would say foreign politics and war is definitely affecting our pocketbooks here. Not just from the fact that we are sending support to a country that protecting the democracy of is incredibly lucrative and advantageous for the United States. When we say we sent $4 billion, we didn't send them cash. We used our money to buy our military equipment to send to them. That money has circulated through a United States in some way. Okay. We are paying ourselves to to give it's them like stuff. Right hand gives money to left hand and left hand. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, we share our toys with them over there. Yeah. So I think if folks understood that a little bit more that we're not sending billions of dollars of cash over there that's getting spent to buy weapons from I don't know Iran like so I, they're not we are we are spending our money on us and sending weapons that we make here that we love to make that create good paying jobs and pensions for Americans and then we're sending it over there now the ethics of the amount of weapons that the United States yeah. makes should be questioned. But if we're just talking in terms of dollars and cents, that is a lucrative investment for the United States. And that is part of the problem why we are perpetually at war. And that is also the truth of what it means when we say we're sending money to another country. And so I think those are the headlines that people are most divisive on. Those are the ones that people want to run their mouth inaccurately on to create division. And when you step back and look at how it affects the actual person, we are much more in agreement than we're not. And the fact is like, USA loves US say, right? Like if we could give ourselves money first, we are. Wealth hoarding is a problem. Military industrial complex is a problem. There's a lot of issues with the humanity and the ethics of the things that go on here. But if we're talking about financial setup, the thing that costs us money is the misinformation surrounding why we are doing things or how the government is spending money. And I worry about that with the debt ceiling as well. The fact that it's been politicized and now people are like, well, we can't raise the debt ceiling. So we're not going to pay the things we already committed to. And that is going to cause economic ramifications for us. So I don't know, that's kind of like a longer, confusing, more confusing answer than I usually give. (laughs) No, I I think that's very thoughtful and also probably explains a lot that people don't actually understand because I do think we read a lot of these headlines and are just like terrified by them. Mm -hmm. Speaking of which, you know, obviously I don't want this to come off as critical of like the entire news industry, but there are certainly reputable publications. And then there are, you know, a lot of trash, hashtag Mm -hmm. fake news, tabloid gossip, whatever. And this fake information oftentimes spreads even faster than the truth because it's so 
incendiary. Mm -hmm. You are obviously someone who has to stay very, very well read to do Mm -hmm. your job. How do you know what's legit and what's crap? I think because I grew up with it. My the first citizen journalist I knew was my mother. Again, shout out to Maureen. She used to sit around <laughs> with her girlfriends and listen to the police scanner, and then she would determine like what was right and what was wrong. And they would like discuss if what was probably possible, who was in the right, who was in the wrong, what made sense. And then my dad would come home and she would like report to him about it. And sometimes she would even take us on a ride to look for the police. Okay, I grew oh up in a small God. town and ask Vinny, who was on the police staff at that time, like Vinny, what's going on with this? So my mom was the original citizen journalist. Any type of gossip always spreads the fastest. And that goes back to the time before cable news was on 24-7. That goes back to when people were still reading a newspaper. Gossip, small town gossip, stuff about people always spreads the fastest. It always does. And there's always like some level of truth and some level of um, wish in gossip, things Mm -hmm. that we wish were true because we like or we don't like someone. Mm -hmm. And so what I have learned is that there is no such thing as an unbiased source. There's not. Mm -hmm. You can look at Al Jazeera, you can look at NPR, you can look at The Guardian, there are less bias maybe, but there's no such thing as an unbiased source because storytelling is inherently human. So when I'm looking at sources, I am looking at both the Washington Post's reporter covering something. And I am looking at how Fox has covered it or how the Washington Examiner has covered it. I don't go as far as Breitbart and Infowars because we know (laughs) for a fact that that is an opinion program. That is not based in reality, right? But there are reporters that lean on either side or that are that have a certain agenda to fail. I read the Daily Mail when I want to know something that's going on that's uh, deeply yeah. interesting to conservatives because I want to hear how it's being said to them so that I can catch on to which parts are true and which parts are to spin up some other issue. Yeah. Same thing on the, on the progressive side. If you're going to read extremely progressive literature, you have to be careful that um, some of it is going to be based in actionability and reality. And it's not just to, you know, bring up the youth in some sort of spur for activism and for energy and the currency is rage on one side and the currency is passion on the other side. Mm. And so I read everything because you're essentially reading Cinderella, but you're reading it from Cinderella's perspective, from the godmother's perspective, from the stepsister's perspective, from the shoes perspective. (laughs) And you need to do all of that and then discern based on your human skills and your feelings, your true to yourself, things that you know are real and not real. And then say, okay, what do I think this story is? I'm very good at hearing a lot of sides and then pulling the truth through. And I think that's what makes me unique and good at what I do. But that is something that you can learn. And that is something that I hope more people learn. And I think folks are learning on TikTok. Look at how many citizen journalists we have on TikTok. Mm-hmm. Folks like Muscles in Nursing or Jay Decon, like folks who were not journalists before who are excellent at media literacy and hearing other people's stories and pulling through what the truth might be. That's awesome. I actually have a source or like, I guess like a resource Mm -hmm. that another journalist, Lisa Ling shared with me, Mm. she really likes ground.news. And it's a website that for every like article or piece of news, they have a little scale at the bottom. And it shows like, this is the percent like conservative, this is the percent liberal, and this is the percent like middle of the fairway. And Mm -hmm. obviously the, the hope is that you would then select pieces that were more un quote unquote unbiased. I know you just mm-hmm. obviously shared that it is very, very difficult to actually be unbiased, but that's cool. And I like that you are so open-minded to hearing all of these different perspectives. Because mm-hmm. different things are true to different people, you know, like mm-hmm. the way that you hear something, going back to student loans, the way that I'm hearing student loans, I'm like, man, I hope it happens because there's a lot of people I know that would benefit from it. And I know what that means for my day-to-day life. For right. folks who don't have them, it means something completely different for them. Many things are true at once. What would you say that like, 
the future of news, where's that headed? And how is that going to impact people financially? I don't think it's as different as we hope that it will be. A lot of people <laughs> in your life will say to me, like, you're the future of news. Citizen journalism is the future of news. I'm like, I don't have the money to put boots on the ground in Ukraine. Legacy media is always going to be so <laughs> powerful and so necessary. And these like big, inst- they're like, I like you because you didn't go to some big college. I'm like, I would have loved to go to Columbia School of Journalism. What yeah. an incredible asset that would be. So I didn't go. So I have friends that went so that I can ask them and be in conversation with them. And they didn't work in a dry cleaner. And I could tell them what it's like for the regular person. You know, I think I think news is definitely going to be more collaborative going forward. I do think that people are exhausted of the 24 hour news cycle. So I do hope to see us wind that down. And I think we're seeing hints of that with the fact that like Fox and CNN, just to use them again as the easy examples, are doing more documentary style style things. They are doing more long form content as opposed to all these pundit shows talking about the same thing all day. I think folks are exhausted of that. And I think we'll see more deep dives into analysis of historic events. People love that. They'll watch that a million times, right? Or these trying to get a first person story that doesn't have a lot of pundit in it. That's just like Mm -hmm. a unique story. I think we're going to see a lot more good news. I think we saw that. We see that after all types of periods of unrest that kind of rebuild, give people hope again. My grandma used to say skirts can only get so short before the maxi dress is back in. And I think that's kind of where we are. Things can only get so divisive and fighty and terrible and tear families apart before people are like, you know what? I am just not going to watch TV anymore. Right. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to read a book. I'm going to get into a hobby. I want to hear something good. What's going on with, uh, I don't know, butterflies these days. And that's why I do good news every Thursday because people need a break. They need something else to just learn and feel curious and excited about that isn't politics or that the earth is dying. <laughs> what are you, What is your like take on news paywalls? So this is very tricky because when you look at the big media companies and newspapers, again, back to the nonprofit sort of mentality, the idea is you should, as a journalist, like die for democracy, right? You should do anything you can to get that story and it shouldn't be paywalled. It should be free, fair, equitable access for everyone in every possible way so that the truth is told. And I believe that, but I also believe that people have to eat. So what freaks me out about some of the big networks and some of the big newspapers is they have a lot of money. They have big advertisers doing million dollar spots and buys and all this stuff. And then there's like the shareholders that own pieces of that who get paid before it trickles down to the lowly journalist who is doing this work for democracy. So I think if there was a way to sort of more equitably break up the way that money flowed through some of these institutions of legacy media, you could pay a reporter $150,000 to write excellent stories and travel and do stuff. And maybe the CEO of that company doesn't need to make $16 million a year. (laughs) I mean, you know, just maybe. But I think that's what makes it hard about paywalls on legacy media things is you already know that there's a lot of money that the advertisers have applied. And now there's a user paywall also. With newspapers, they've always been subscriber supported, but they haven't been in the last 20 years because subscriptions are down and advertising is up or placed articles are up or being paid to do an op-ed is up. So I try to keep everything not on a paywall, but I have all also made an intentional choice to myself get subscriptions to every friggin' periodical I possibly can. And I build that into the value I have. So it's like, I've read all this stuff. I'm going to kind of bring it to you, which is why I don't feel like it's ethical for me to put paywalls on stuff because I'm not doing original reporting. If I'm doing original reporting, like when I do speaker gigs or I do classes on like how to, how to do a journalism, that's unique. And that's something I own. Yeah. Paywalls are hard, man. It's tough. It's tough. I feel like you explaining that to me makes me understand so much better why a lot of these newsrooms are all unionizing 
marketing. Yeah. Because I actually worked on the digital advertising side of the house when I worked at BuzzFeed. Mm. And I remember selling multi seven figure deals. I was certainly not making multi seven yeah. figures. Um, but you know, that, that money went to the company. And it was just surprising to me that I was like, why are all of these reporters like quitting? Why? Like, why does everybody like hate each other? Because you could make a sub stack now. I think this is part of why yeah. there's going to be a ban on TikTok. And there's all these new regulations on who can talk about different things online through these social media platforms. And it's because the legacy media is losing control of who tells the story. You're going to tell me Taylor Lorenz couldn't make as much money on her Substack mm-hmm. as she does working at the Washington Post. Of course she does. She's a name that people follow yeah. for her particular brand of journalism. And so I think that is a threat in some ways and something they're trying to control, certainly. But yeah, it's like when I worked at the nonprofit, right? I The nonprofit, I won't say which one, had $11 million in the bank. <laughs> and I raised $2 million for my program off of partnerships. Like, you know, when you're selling something, you are hustling. It's like Mm -hmm. almost 80% of your time and 20% is spent on actually doing the thing you you want to help. Begging, emailing, uh, doing hosting dinners, client entertaining, all this kind of stuff to get money from people who then micromanage the money they give you so much that oftentimes the mission can get lost to what you owe to the donors. They had 11 million in the bank. I raised 2 million. I was given $571,000 to run my program, which was supposed to deliver a $2 million program program on 571. And in that 571 was the salaries of people who didn't even work on my team and did not work within my my uh, vertical because other people didn't raise as much money, but doesn't mean their work isn't as valuable or they're not a monetizable asset or they're not a fundable asset, but they're still important. I mean, the accountants are important. The yeah. digital girls are important. Every And that's who they were for me. They're all important. So they're all in there. But then they were putting like senior vice president salaries in there, senior vice president bonuses in there. And that was all coming off of my $2 million I raised for my program. Mm-hmm. And I made $92,000. That is a rough cut when you raise $2 million yeah. and you make $92,000. Woo! Yeah. Woo! And you don't see it in your budget because, you know, what was the, the valley between five seventy one and $2 million? That was rough. And then you're holding all of that on $90,000. And that's what you're seeing in these big media companies too. They know that their show monetized at $3 million. They know that their budget for production is $500,000. And they know that they're making two fifty. dollars So mm-hmm. it's like, ugh. And that's like if you're an anchor, right? Right. So it's tricky. 100%. So I know we're starting to wrap up. Yep. I would love to know what is the greatest thing you've learned now working in this industry, perhaps, you know, this this career path you've now taken on. People are so much nicer than you think and people are so much more insecure than you think and everybody they are they really do and that that it that was a surprise to me because I was scared getting into the news because you see such divisive like hatefulness and I was like it's okay I'm just gonna have my little under the desk group and we're just gonna do what we can and for the first two years that I did this I did get a ton of shit from people who looked down on what I did and were like you do what isn't that a children's dancing app I was like I don't care (laughs) you know what Sure. If that's what it is to you, that that's not what it is to me. And, it, and I'm not going to let you take away the joy it brings me and the, and the people I love and care about that are there that we share these stories with. But I think overall, people are so much nicer, so much more insecure, so much more curious than we give them credit for. And when you make room for other people, they make room for you. There are people that you should just block straight off <laughs> that aren't going to change. 
and you shouldn't waste your energy trying to change them. But there are so many people who come in hot because they feel like they have to come in hot because it turns out that they just didn't feel seen any other way. The amount of comments I get when I respond to somebody who came in with a hot take and I'll DM them or something or I'll respond to their comments, say more about that or, oh, I'm really interested in what you mean by that. And they're like, I didn't think you'd ever see that. I didn't think you'd ever respond to me. And I'm like, of course I would. What you said was interesting. I might not even agree with it, but it's interesting. I want to know where it came from. And I think more of that is what I hope we see as we continue to sort of like humanize the storytelling and news that we do. On the flip side, what is the biggest mistake you've made during this path, whether it be a career mistake, a financial mistake, you know, building your business? I think you got to figure out what's your business and what's not. And I mean that both like from a mind your business perspective and from a <laughs> brand perspective. Um, I'm going to use the Chris Rock slap as my example. I was one of the first people to have the Chris Rock slapping uh, Will Smith because I was watching it and I immediately posted about it like within seconds. The video yeah. went to like 3 million views within seconds. And a Black creator that I very much respect uh, wrote to me and was like, you are getting involved in Black people business. And I was like, oh, okay, talk more about that. And she's like, you do not understand the weight and the narrative that is going to follow this Chris Rock slap and this um, Black men being aggressive on television during like a, an awards show, like this prestigious event. And you are not qualified to carry that conversation to a good place. And I was like, you are absolutely right. I saw this. And then other people will say, everybody saw the slap and talked about it. I don't care. If somebody tells me that's black people's business, that is not my business. Then you're absolutely right. And took the video down. I was like, you know what? I'm not going to be the person, nor do I want to be the person to talk about the broader implications of what we just saw and what that means for communities that I'm not a part of. Right. So I think that is a hard lesson to learn. Where is the line between what you cover as a journalist, what your beat is, what you care about, what you're authorized to speak on, and what is not your business? And then there are other things that are extremely lucrative to talk about that I don't talk about because they're not my brand. If I do a video, unfortunately, on violence against women, children, Jeffrey Epstein, different kind of stuff like that, there are times when it's the right time to cover it objectively. And there are times when that is not my brand. People don't come to me for unsafe content about just deeply upsetting things, true crime. Yeah. There's a lot of true crime in the news that I should cover. I don't because that is not under the desk brand, right? That's not even if I should or I would get a lot of views for it. I just don't because right. I'm part of a collective and there are people in the collective who cover that better than me and who know more about it than me. And so they you should go to them for that stuff. So I think that's my biggest advice. Know what is your business. I love that you also make space for other oh, yeah. journalists in the space. That's very, very thoughtful. Even non-journalists. I mean, yeah. when we did the Iranian women's protest, I did one video that I had worked with an Iranian group on like, is this the correct messaging? They said, yes, apparently it was not. Actually, you have to be very careful when you cover Iran because there's a lot of misinformation coming from the regime that looks very authentic that is not. And then I had women from Iran be like, the way you covered that is going to cause harm. And I took it. I like defended it for a minute because I was like, but I was told by like someone right. who appears very in the group. And they were like, nope, took it down. And then what did we do? We had Yeg come in and do the updates every Tuesday. And she's a citizen journalist because she knows it's her business, but I could use my platform to help people to get that word out more authentically and do it properly. And so, yeah. I love that. Yeah. And to end on a high note, tell me what is coming next for V. Tell me what is coming next for Under the Desk News. I want to hear everything. Brag. So, okay, good. So we are doing the V Interesting podcast. We're now doing it once a week, which I'm super excited about. I think doing the two times a week was like fine, but the one once a week banger episode, fantastic. Four headlines. You might've missed that week to keep you interesting and conversational. And then an 
interview with somebody who has something to teach us. So we're going to be doing more of that. I have a YouTube channel now. So I'm going to be doing something where we're breaking down a concept like a racket or a citizen journalism in a four-part series of like how it was, how it is now, and what you can do with it. And just trying to keep people, again, talking about stuff that's interesting, being conversational, having little tidbits to take back to their friends and family and like lead better conversations with. So we're doing that. I'm on a speaker tour right now. So if you book speakers, book me. I was just at the UN. That was pretty exciting talking about youth and the internet. And yeah, I don't know. I just kind of like roll with it and see what comes up. That's amazing. Yeah. There are so many cool things to come. (laughs) I am so excited to watch. Your banana shirt is the highlight of my week. (laughs) Mine too. (laughs) (laughs) But thank you so much for being here. This was an incredibly an enlightening conversation. Thank you. Always good to hang out. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Net Worth and Chill. If you like this episode, make sure to leave a rating and a review and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Got a financial question you want answered in the future? You can leave me a voicemail or text me at 908-858-3410. Make sure to follow me at Your Rich BFF across social media for even more relatable financial content. Special thanks to my team at Audioboom as well as Range Media and WME. See you next week. Bye!